Thanks for checking out the Vox Church podcast. We are so honored to have you join us, and we hope this message speaks to you in a powerful way. Learn more about Vox Church by visiting us online at voxchurch.us. Enjoy the message. Good morning, church. Streaming live all over the state of Connecticut. God is up to something incredible. If you were with us last week, we had the privilege of hearing from Zenzo Matoga. I hope you were blessed by Zenzo. He's a great friend of this house and an amazing man of God. Thankful for him. Excited for all that's happening across the region. A couple of updates. Many of you know we've been working on our launch in Springfield, Massachusetts. We're hoping in the next week or so to announce the official weekly start date. We've been meeting there monthly for the last few months and hoping to launch weekly very soon. Just finalizing some things with our venue options. And also at the same time, we are beginning our monthly services in Stamford, Connecticut. So Stamford, Connecticut is exciting. That'll start October, November, December, January. Our hope is to start weekly services there in February. So specifically for our Bridgeport location or anybody that wants to get involved, you can sign up in Bridgeport to be a part of that launch team. And if you'd like some more information or you're interested in being part of the launch team for Stanford, you can do that online at our website. All right, sound good? Everybody doing good? Yeah, exciting stuff. Also, just to let you know, we are going to be having some service time changes starting on the 23rd of September. Some of the service times at our locations will be changing. Our North Campus just went back to two services this week, but we're going to be moving from eight, and that's nine with North at two, nine services to 13 services every Sunday, all right, all across our locations over the next few uh, weeks, and so we're excited about that. But that being said, we are asking you today to get involved, all right? Get involved. It's critical that you get involved. When you walked in, you received that welcome card. Can you find that for me, please, if you don't mind? See if you can locate the welcome card. On there is an opportunity for you to get involved Serving. When you check that box, you're not committing to a lifetime of serving at the church. You're just getting more information. And we would really love to give you some more information specifically about our Vox Kids program, our kids programs, and then also our servant teams that run all the setup at our various locations. It's critical that right now our goal is actually to to have another 200 people get involved across our locations in serving at the church. And as we grow, you know, God is opening up the opportunities for us to reach more and more people, but uh, but we need you. We need you, all right? So so go ahead and turn to the person next and say, you know, you would look really good in one of those servant team t-shirts. You would definitely, definitely look good in one of those. All right, Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. You can fill that out. Drop it in the bucket before you leave. It would really be our privilege to get you some more information. Philippians chapter 2, if you're new to the Bible, this is the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes to the church in Philippi, and in Philippians chapter chapter 2, verse 12, he says this, therefore, everybody say therefore, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If you want to jot some notes down, the title of the sermon today is God at work. God at work. Would you pray with me? All of our locations, those of you in the balcony, those of you in the back, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for an opportunity to study the Bible, to gather, 
to hear from Jesus. And that's what we came here to do, God. We don't want to hear the thoughts and opinions of man. We want to hear the thoughts and desires of God. And so I pray that you would speak to each of us in a profound way, God, that you would speak beyond our minds, beyond our emotions to the very core of who we are. And God, I pray that you would change us, every one of us, to become more like Jesus. Convict us, awaken us, draw us to Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. 1879, Thomas Edison introduced the world to the incandescent light bulb. You probably heard that in elementary school, but at the time, it was a modern marvel. People were amazed at the incredible potential of the light bulb, but Edison's vision was not just to light up a room or even light up a house. He had big plans to light up the world. And so he started developing what became the very first power plant and the very first power grid. Lower East Side of New York City started ripping up the sidewalks on uh, you know, the approval of the city and buried 100,000 feet of copper wire underneath the sidewalks of this small neighborhood, ran all of his cabling, all of his wiring, and on September 4th, 1882, with all the meters and the switchboards in place, the power plant was ready. He flipped the switch, and a section of New York City, for the first time in human history, began to glow with electric light. It really was, in every way, a revolution in the history of the human race. You think about it, and now as you, you know, land an airplane and you look out the window, I mean, you may not be driving, flying the airplane, but you're in the airplane and it's landing, and you look out the window and you see the thousands of little lights in the city as you come down. Next time you do that, look out and think, sure glad Thomas Edison took a risk, you know, and built all of this infrastructure that we now have today, starting with just the ideas and the dreams of one man. Well, in the early church, when the first apostles started to describe to the early Christians who Jesus was and what Jesus did, what they emphasized again and again is, yes, he was one man, and yes, his life seemed small, but what you need to realize is that what Jesus started was revolutionary. It was the greatest revolution in human history, and it changes everything. And to not understand Jesus in a revolutionary way is to miss the very essence of who he is and why he came. And so Jesus came to earth from the great power station of heaven and he broke up the sidewalks of sin that were hardened in the hearts of men and women and then he died a sacrificial death and buried his body underground so that he could become the great power station of humanity running the copper cabling of grace to homes and to hearts all across the earth so that by the power of his spirit the electrical current of God could enter into the heart of a human being and that person's life could glow. That's the purpose of God. That's the plan of God. Connecting people who are in darkness to life, to hope, to light, to eternal life. Just as Edison insisted that everything be buried under the surface, so Jesus does his work in the hidden place of the heart, in the place where it is undiscernible at first. A person prays a prayer person accepts Jesus, and on the outside, their problems still seem the same. On the outside, their issues still seem the same. On the outside, their financial struggles still see the same. Their marriage still seems the same. 
But over time, that secret work, that inner work changes everything on the outside and it enables light to pass through that person's life. In Philippians 2, I love how the Apostle Paul starts the passage. You can read it on your own. The first 11 verses he uses to describe what Jesus has done. It's pretty amazing. He talks about how Jesus has humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, and now God has exalted him as the name that is above every other name. And then he begins verse 12 with this statement where he says, therefore. And what he's doing there is he's transitioning from, okay, this is what Jesus has done. This is what God has accomplished. And now because of that, there's an inner work that's occurred in the heart of every person that's believed. And so as the work of God has now flowed through you in the secret place, you must work out that work in the physical realm. And so the change that Christ has accomplished on the inside should shift the way you operate as a family, should shift the way you interact with your neighbors, and should change the way you act at work. And so today what we're going to look at is what happens when God comes with you to work. Sound good? Turn person next to you and say, I am so glad you came today because this one is for you. Look at verse 12. Therefore, therefore, therefore. Now we know that therefore is there for a reason, right? He wants you to know that this is all based on the fact that Jesus has accomplished what we thought was impossible, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and that he did it as your representative so you can be forgiven of all your sins. Be perfect and blameless before God. Be accepted by his grace and have eternal life on the inside of you. Therefore, that's a big therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Pause. Think about your job. Maybe you're a student right now. Maybe you're working a part-time job. Maybe, you know, you are in the middle of a change in careers. Or maybe you're doing the job you always dreamed of. Whatever your circumstance might be, think of what you're doing for work right now. Is that the typical philosophy that you have found at work? The philosophy that says you are going to work diligently, consistently, whether the boss notices or doesn't notice, whether, you know, people promote you for it or ignore you for it. That's the way you work. I don't know where you work, but you'd probably say, well, it's not exactly the philosophy, you know, at my particular business. Some of us in the room are passionately diligent in our work. And you are the guy that says, you know, I don't work 40 hours, Justin, I work 70. You know, I work 80. I I work so much. I'm always working. I'm always ahead. I'm always getting that promotion. I'm pushing to the next level. I'm exhausting myself. The question, if you find yourself in that position, is why do you work so hard? I mean, under the surface, the thing going on in your heart, why do you work so hard? See, what I've found in my own life, because I've had a tendency to overwork, What I found in my own life is that oftentimes when people work so hard, like beyond what's expected more and more, it's not out of this passion to be diligent. Far often it's out of an insecurity to prove their own worth. That there's something inside of you that has to be better than your dad, has to be better than your brother, has to be better than somebody to prove to them that you have what it takes. And so you work and you work and you work and you fight for that promotion because you've got to prove to everybody that you've got it. And your heart aches for a sense of security. I'm talking to you right now. Your heart aches for a sense of stability, a sense of control. And so it manifests through overworking. You can tell somebody around you, I don't think that's healthy. But then there's others of us in the room and across our locations that you are not an overworker. We don't have to worry about that. 
Your strategy in life is to do the minimum. And you would say, you know, honestly, Justin, my company's crooked. I'm going to stick it to the man. Listen, if I can leave 15 minutes early, I'm leaving. Everybody, you know, everybody gets there late. Everybody borrows some of the equipment. It's not a big deal. That's just how it works here. And the truth is, he doesn't know. She doesn't know. My, they don't know. And they don't need to know. It's not that big of a deal. That's just the way it goes. Maybe you find yourself justifying. And even right now, as I say it, you're scrambling. No, that's not me. Just for justification. Well, the apostle Paul in the text says, hold on, there's implications that come with the gospel. And the implication is that you work hard when no one is watching and you work hard when everyone is watching. And he gives a specific reason. He says, hey, listen, there's something's changed inside of you. I love the way he explains it in Philipp- in uh, of Colossians chapter three. Take a look at it with me. He says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were, check it out, working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember, because you have a tendency to forget, that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. Do you see it? What he's saying is when the good news of God's grace actually gets from your head to your heart, it changes your work ethic and you discover something that's true about the nature of life and about the nature of God, that God himself is a hard worker. And when you work faithfully, diligently, consistently, And honestly, you image or mirror God to the people around you. You actually look like him. And the reward you receive is not ultimately from your boss, from your company, from your constituents. It's not ultimately from any of those things. The reward you receive for hard labor, for consistent, diligent faithfulness is ultimately from God. That in this life, come on, and the next life, God rewards the faithful. And so what he's describing here is a shift In your thinking, this means that when other people lie and get away with it, you don't lie. This means when other people cut the corners, you don't cut the corners. This means when other people fudge the numbers, you tell it like it is, even if it hurts you in the short term, because you know there's a God, I'm talking to somebody's situation right now, you know there's a God who's faithful in the long term. You're like, dang, why did I come to church? In other words, what God is teaching us is that if you really believe that Jesus has done what he said he's done, then you need to redirect your focus to a new audience. You can jot that thought down. A new audience. I live to please God. Now imagine, church, with me, if all of those involved in Vox Church across our various locations, all of the different vocations represented here, imagine if all of us began to live with that perspective. If every day we stepped into our jobs or into our classrooms or into wherever you may be going, and every day we had a perspective that says, I am living for a divine audience. I am serving, not because this is a a just place, not because I've been treated fairly, not because I have opportunity just for promotion, but because God is faithful to me, because he is a hard worker and I honor him when I work hard. I am trusting the reward that he gives me in the unseen realm when I am faithful and consistent and so I'm gonna be diligent. Imagine how different you might start looking at your job. First of all, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love this. There's a tension in that verse, you know? It exposes for us a flawed philosophy in our natural minds. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation, because it's God who works. Work out your own salvation, because it's God who works. See, human beings naturally think that I can earn God's favor through my diligent obedience. There's something inside of us, and it's pride, by the way, that thinks that if I'm good enough, if I'm a good person, God will accept me. You know, I've talked to thousands of people about faith in Christ and heaven, and I've asked so many, well, why do you think that you'll go to heaven? And so many have come back and said to me, well, the most number one answer, well, it's because I'm a pretty good person, right? I'm a pretty good person, and because I'm a pretty good person, I think God's going to, you know, receive me into heaven, and so in other words, what we're saying is my record of personal attainment proves that I'm worthy of heaven. In other words, my obedience to some code of goodness has authorized my acceptance, and what Paul is saying is actually that that whole way of thinking needs to be turned on its head. The gospel completely cancels out entire life philosophy. And the first thing that the gospel teaches us is that you are far more sinful than you actually think you are. And that you're not just a little bit broken at needing a few tweaks, but you are in fact completely and entirely unable to get to God on your own righteousness. That apart from him, you have absolutely no chance of being seen as righteous before God. You cannot, through your obedience, be accepted by your perfect, holy creator. And this, of course, creates great conflict in the human heart. But along with that news comes the best news that we could ever hear, that Jesus was perfect for you, that his perfection can be transferred to you as you place your faith in what he's done. And so he lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. He rose from the dead so that he could transfer his perfection into your account and you could transfer your sin into his account. And in the eyes of a just and holy God, you could be deemed perfect, perfect. This is the essence of the gospel. It is not that if you obey, you will be accepted. It is that you are, by faith, accepted. And this transforms your heart to desire obedience. And so that's why Paul says, he doesn't say work for your own salvation, thank God. He says work out your own salvation. Work out. You know what working out means? You gotta stretch your muscles. You gotta put some weight on your body so that you feel the pressure. You gotta run a little further, work it out. Work out your salvation. In other words, apply the identity you're given by grace to every aspect of your life. See, we live in a culture that champions the idea of self-reliance, right? Self-reliance, listen, you gotta rely on yourself, you can do it. But the gospel says you can't do it. And so self-reliance tells us, well, I can do this without God's help. But the gospel comes along and says, actually, apart from him, you can do nothing. Self-reliance says, well, I'm important because of what I do. And the gospel says, well, actually, you're important because of what he's done. Self-reliance says, well, well, I'll earn my way. And you'll find that it's never enough if you try to earn your way. 
But the gospel comes in and says, no, 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 he's made a way for you and it's more than enough. And if you will humble yourself and receive the gift of God's grace, it will experience on the inside a revolution in the soul and it'll enable you to have a new audience where you live to please him, not your spouse so much above God, not your boss so much above God, not your friends so much above God, but you live to please him. And you'll find, by the way, that you're more pleasing to others when you do that, a new audience, and then with it, a new assurance, a new assurance that God is my source. God is my source. He's outlining for us a different way of living in our neighborhoods, in our families, and at our jobs that distinguishes the believer from everybody else. God is my source. My job's not my source. My family's not my source. My own strength is not my source. My intellect is not my source. God is the source of my being. And so he says, with fear and trembling, work out your own salvation. Now, that doesn't mean with anxiety and terror, okay? This idea of fear and trembling is actually humility and awe where he says, you've got to begin to apply this truth to your heart that you're accepted and you should do it in awe because God in the invisible realm is working in you what you could never work in yourself. Come on, somebody say amen. Amen, amen. The other day I was teaching my boys, my two older sons, about justification and sanctification, all right? Because when you're a pastor's kid, that's what you gotta deal with, all right? Justification and saying, and some of you are like, who do, but what? Yeah, so, so justification is that God sees me as perfect before him through Christ, okay? Sanctification is the process in which that perfection manifests in my life, okay? It's a process. And so I'm trying to teach them about justification and sanctification. So I'm getting them to repeat it after me. You know, and I said, okay, justification, sanctification. Justification, it means he sees you and my son goes, when you're sleeping. And I was like, oh. And then my other one's like, Eddie knows when you're, I'm like, all right. Though that is true, he does see you. That's not the point. Justification means he sees you blameless through Christ. And sanctification means that the process of that perfection will take you your lifetime. You are ever growing closer to God through the process of him working that truth in you. But that's important because it happens how? You are sanctified in God as you internalize, this is so important, don't miss this, as you internalize that you are not the source of your own ability. You're not the source of your own strength. You are not capable of obtaining righteousness. You actually, the more you internalize that truth, the more you grow in the ability to become what your heart longs to be. So as I trust God as my source, I find the power to become holy. This is how Jesus puts it in John chapter 15. I love it. He says, abide in me and I in you. You may have heard this before. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. So in our illustration, he would say, listen, I'm the power lines. I'm the power lines, you're the house. We're connected. Whoever abides in me, the electricity's got to go through those power lines of grace that were planted by Jesus. And whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But then he goes on in verse seven to say this, check it out. He says, if you abide in me, if you stay in that place of God, you're my source, not on my own source, not I can do 
do it myself, not God help me only when I'm struggling, but constantly in success and failure, no matter where I am in life, God, you are my source. When that gets internalized and you abide in me and my words, your words, the words that I am accepted, the words that I am forgiven, the words that I am made blameless, the words that I am loved, somebody's got to hear that again, you are loved, somebody's got to hear it again, you are loved, somebody's got to hear it one more time, you are loved. When that word gets in me, when God convinces you in the inner man that it's not just true for your friend or your neighbor or the person who invited you, but when it becomes true for you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see it? He says the impossible becomes your reality when you abide in the truth that I am your source, that I am your source. God is my source. A new assurance makes you look different. Verse 14, take a look. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. So he's already outlined for us this new audience. Live to please God. And then he goes to this new assurance. God is my source. He's working in me both to will and to do his good pleasure. I trust him. A new assurance. And now he starts talking about grumbling. Grumbling is really the same as complaining, okay? And we are currently living, whether you realize it or not, we are currently living in the most privileged generation in human history. And yet, if we are honest, we are expert complainers. Come on, let's be real. It's too hot in here. It's too cold. There's only like one temperature percentage that is able to go from either side, or it's too hot or it's too cold, or, you know, the food is overcooked. No, now it's undercooked, you know? You come into church, you say, these people aren't nice. And then somebody says hi to you. They're too nice, too nice. They are too nice, you know? This free Wi-Fi is too slow. I mean, the things that come out of our mouths, you know what I mean? This drive-through window is taking too long. I have not even exited the car. My butt has not moved from the chair, but the drive-through window is taking too long. There are 800 million people on planet Earth who do not have food. It's 1237. I haven't eaten lunch. I'm starving. 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 This is the world we live in. This is our reality. In the Old Testament, we're told that after the people of God get delivered from Egypt, they get out into the wilderness and they start grumbling. They start complaining. I mean, it's ridiculous the things that come out of our mouths. We're told that they get out in the wilderness and they're like, yeah, we know God parted the Red Sea, brought these plagues upon Egypt, removed us from the land. We're no longer slaves. He made us wealthy in the meantime. Here we are out in the wilderness, but the food's not quite as good. You know, it's just like, ah, I was just really, you know, I had just like one of those, like, you know, I just wish I could get one of those Egyptian whatevers, you know, I just would love to eat some of that because out here the food, I just, it's not, you know, the menu's not as, as, as full, you know, and there they are complaining and we're told that they wander in the wilderness for 40 years and they never enter the promised land and they waste their life. Why? Because complaining, don't miss this this morning, complaining is always a sign of unbelief. And God cannot bless our unbelief. And so when we complain, what we are confessing is that we don't believe that God is really in control. That we don't believe that God will really give me the strength I need. We don't believe that God really does have a plan. 
And underneath all those things, there's one core thing that we're confessing every time we complain. That I don't really believe that God is good and that he works all things for my good. See, some of us, you're here today and you are sabotaging your destiny because you can't stop complaining. And just like the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness, you wonder why you keep going around in circles and God is trying to get your attention today and tell you, I love you, shut up. (laughs) See, our problem is where we are deriving our evidence from. Many of us were deriving our evidence of God's goodness from our circumstances. And so we look at our little world and our little circumstance and we say, well, this didn't work out and that didn't go the way I thought. And so God must not be good or he must not be good to me. And what Paul would say is you are using the wrong evidence because the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the irrevocable evidence of God's intentions towards you. It's the irrevocable evidence that God is good for you and good towards you, no matter what you see or feel in this life, that God. God came, died for your sins, rose from the dead. He's given you eternal life and made you blameless before him. That is so good that just because the job or just because the health or just because the family has been a struggle, it should not call into question God's goodness over your life. And so he says, I'm asking you to look up to a new audience, to internalize a new assurance And then to operate with a new attitude. My words reflect God's goodness. My words reflect God's goodness. And he says, when you do this, he says, then people will see you as innocent. That word innocent in the Greek, it literally means without mixture. I love that. He's saying people will see you without mixture. It was used to describe wine that was not watered down. In other words, people will see you and they say, well, they're not perfect, but there's something genuine about them. There's something honest about them. They're without mixture. There's something true about them. And then, look what happens, verse 15. You may be blameless, innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation, among whom you shine I love this, among whom you shine, this is where it gets exciting, as lights in the world. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, of course, light does a lot of things. Light enables you to see reality. If we turned off all the lights, you'd be crashing into chairs and stuff because you couldn't see what was right in front of you, right? Light is guidance, enables you to follow a path. Light is happiness, when the sun rises and you, it's all darkness until that sun comes up, it brings joy to the heart. So Paul says that the believer should be all of those things to those around them, light. But notice he says, not a light. He says, you all, church, shine as lights, many lights. This describes the plan or the strategy or the purpose of Jesus on the earth through the church right now. And it's so critical that you see this today. Many lights, okay? Many lights. And he says, I'm going to put you somewhere particular. I have a strategy here, and I need to put my lights in particular places. And so he says, I'm going to put my lights in the midst. Did you see it? In the midst of a crooked generation. 
in the midst. Now that Greek word is the Greek word mesos. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and say mesos. Mesos, yeah, mesos. This is the plan of God. It means right in the middle. It means right between. It means right in the center. It means right around the corner. He's putting people right in the mesos of life, right in the midst, right in the middle. You say, Justin, my office is a mess. Well, maybe you're in the right place. You say, my family's a mess. Well, maybe God put you there for a reason. You say, my neighborhood's a mess. Well, maybe that's why he has you there. He puts his lights right in the mesos, right in the middle. In fact, this is the model of Jesus. Jesus could have stayed in heaven. He had no obligation to come to earth and save humanity. And yet Jesus demonstrated the nature of God by entering in to the mess, by coming and living right in the midst of the people. He came, he died, he rose from the dead so that he could make this divine connection, that the power source of heaven could be connected to the dark hearts of earth. And by his grace, he could then run his life into my heart, into your heart. And through the working of his spirit in the secret place, you could discover a new audience, a new assurance, a new attitude, and begin yourself to glow with his light. That's his purpose. So here's what you got to see, where you work, where you live right now. You think it's just some random thing. Friend, you've got to realize that that's one spot on the power grid of heaven, that he's got you there for a purpose. And so he puts one at the checkout counter at the grocery store. He puts another at the library as a librarian. He puts another in the fire department. He puts another as a student at that university. He puts another in the OR. He puts another at a hedge fund. He puts another at home with the kids. He puts another at a retail store. He puts another at a barista, as a barista. He puts another as a a kindergarten teacher. He puts another as a construction worker. He puts another on a sales team. And he puts them all over a city. And just like Edison built that grid, connected them all through that copper cabling underground. So Christ has built a grid across this city and across this region and he's setting up little lights in every little corner so that he could turn the light on through you. You could demonstrate a different way of living and the whole city could glow in Jesus' name. See, here's what I'm trying to get at today. You thought you were working a job and God says to you today, I've given you a calling. I've given you a calling and it overlaps with your job. It overlaps with where you are and with what you're doing right now. And your job may change, but your calling will not. Your calling, that's a divine mandate from God. Your calling is to live your life differently. And so that wherever you are, you live for an audience of one. Wherever you are, you carry an assurance that God is your source. Wherever you are, you demonstrate an attitude that is confident in God's goodness. And as you do that, you begin to glow. And when we do it together, I really believe, church, when we do it together, all of New England begins to glow. This whole region begins to glow. Jot this thought down. God redeems the world by positioning his people in the midst, right in the mess. God redeems the world. That's his plan. You think, well, why doesn't he just write, you know, in the clouds that Jesus saves? Or why doesn't he just have an angel declare? Friend, what you got to realize is you're the plan. 
You're the plan. God redeems the world by positioning his people in the midst. You're the plan for your office. You're the plan for your family. Somebody's got to hear that today. You're the plan for your neighborhood. You think, well, I'm pretty unqualified. That seems to be the way God operates. He calls those who don't feel qualified and he qualifies them through his blood and through his resurrected life inside of them. And when you begin to see the purpose and the calling, well, I believe work won't be quite so boring. I believe it'll be easier to work for a boss that's not fair. I believe that when the layoffs and the cuts come and everybody else panics, you can have peace because you know that your source is not this job. And I believe when everybody else gossips, you can speak life because you trust God's goodness in the midst of a crooked generation. See, God says to you today, I am calling you to glow. Would you? Would you take it seriously? Remember years ago hearing a story about the Roman Empire in the fourth century. In the cities of Rome at that time, a plague began to break out. Thousands were infected with this disease and it was horrific. Parents would leave their children on the streets to die as they ran out of the city to protect their own lives. Husbands left their wives behind. Wives left their husbands. People were abandoned in every corner of the city. Thousands died. But right in the midst of that tragedy, followers of Jesus started leaving the towns and not running from the cities, but running to the cities. And there they would take the kids that had been left behind. There they would take the spouse that had been abandoned and they would care for them. And many of those followers of Jesus died themselves of that same plague. But so many Christians began to do this that the entire Roman Empire took notice and they marveled. And they said, what is this? That men and women would give their lives for perfect strangers? That people would act like, what do they know that we don't know? Friend, what they saw is these people live for a different audience. And then they realized these people have a different assurance about life and about the future and about eternity. And these people embody a different attitude. And millions turn to faith in Jesus because of their witness. I'm telling you, I believe that we are living in a crooked and broken generation. And I believe that God is looking to you to embody his spirit where you work. And so he wants to invite you to do that like never before, starting today. Just stand to your feet with me at all of our locations. In your welcome pack this morning, you received a little card. You don't have to find it right now. I'm going to read it to you. It'll be on the screen. But this is a prayer. And my challenge for you is in the next 30 days to pray this prayer every day. Put this little card somewhere you'll see it. Maybe take a picture of it. Make it the background of your phone. Or put it on your dashboard. Or put it on your mirror. But over the next 30 days, pray this prayer every day. 
The prayer simply says this. You can follow along. It says, today I choose to integrate my faith and work. My heart is aimed at pleasing you, God. I believe you love me. You accept me through Christ. Help every word I speak reflect my conviction that you are good. Father, shine your glory through me today. Shine your glory through me today. Here's what I believe. I believe that if our church would begin to pray that prayer every day for the next 30 days, that something revolutionary would begin to happen. That God would begin to glow through you at your job. And that people would see the grace of God through your life. Let's take a few minutes right now just to do some personal inventory. Would you do that with me? I'm not going to make you acknowledge any of these things. I'm just asking you to inwardly consider them. Do you have a tendency to turn off Jesus as soon as you leave church? You get to work and you're in work mode and your values, your morals, your decision-making is not being fed from your faith in Christ. If you're honest, whose opinion matters most to you? Whose opinion really matters most? Are you the person that works so hard because you're striving to prove yourself? Are you the person that takes the extra cuts in the corners when people aren't looking? Whose opinion matters most to you? Where do you find your source of confidence? Are you more confident in your skill than you are in God's grace? Are you more confident in your wit, in your looks, in your intelligence than you are in God's spirit? Because friend, if you are, you are on the path to be humbled or you can humble yourself and God will exalt you. Where's your source of confidence come from? And do your words reflect the conviction that God is good or more often than not, do you find yourself entering in as a complainer? Don't sabotage your destiny because you can't stop complaining. Instead, retool your words through the gospel, believing that God is good. Take a moment right now, let's pray. And let's do some honest inventory before God. And wherever you find yourself in need right now, wherever you find yourself in lack, let's turn to him. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. You're here today and you say, Justin, I want to change. I want to be a light everywhere I go. I want people to see Christ through the inner working of my heart, but I just don't know if I can. I just don't know how to change. Friend, the answer is right in the text we read today. Approach him today with fear and trembling, with awe and humility, because it's God who will work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So what do you have to do? You just have to ask him. Just ask him. We're going to sing a song, and it says, I want my life to ever be entwined with you, tethered to your heart. Ask him today. Ask him today, God, would you give me a grace to stop complaining? God, would you help me to look to you as my primary audience for approval? God, would you redirect my attention to you? Would you help me to look to you as my source, not to myself, not to my job, but to you? 
God, would you do the work in my heart? I invite you to do it now. Come on, let's ask him. Jesus, as we worship you this morning, I pray that you would meet us in power. I sense your Holy Spirit here right now. And I pray that, God, you would tether our hearts to you. I pray that, Jesus, that you would redirect our attention and that you would, by your Spirit, make us glow through grace. We welcome you now in Jesus' name. Let's take some time to sing. Vox Church seeks to reach New England and beyond with the life-transforming message of Jesus. If you have been impacted by this message or the ministry of Vox Church, you can continue to help us reach others by giving today at voxchurch.us. For more information on how to get involved, visit us online or on any social media platform at vox.church. We always appreciate you taking the time to rate or review this message on iTunes. Thanks again for listening to the Vox Church Podcast.